Psalm 119.14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. As we gather each week, I think we feel acutely sometimes our sense of weakness. And when we sing, we remind ourselves of God's strength. And that it's his strength and his might and his power that sustains us. So uh, let's just keep that in mind as we sing this morning, as we continue our worship. Anyhow, we are having a prayer meeting tonight. And I'm just really excited uh, about the opportunity to gather as a body of believers to go before the Lord and pray together. I apologize that we didn't arrange childcare ahead of time. We were intending to do that, but it was one of those things that slipped through the cracks. So uh, we don't have it arranged. If somebody wants to volunteer, just see me after the service and I'll get an email out to people. But other than that, we'll just invite you to bring your children and to do it at your own discretion. I do encourage the young people to come because I think it's a great opportunity for them to learn what all of us need to learn, and that is to pray together as the body of Christ. And so we're looking forward to that time together tonight. I invite you to pray with me if you would. Father, uh, we desperately need you, and we thank you that you desperately want uh, to meet us and to minister to us and to redeem us. And I thank you for the, the beauty of your word, which opens to us wonderful truths about who you are that make our faith in you real and which give us grace and strength to continue in a world that is against us and against you. God, give us grace as we open the scriptures. May you speak to each of our hearts in a way that you know we need to be spoken to by your grace and for your glory we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the summer of 2016, uh, I was training and then led a short-term mission team. I was in the process of gearing up for the fall planning for the ministry of the church that I was serving, and Marla and I were planning and preparing for a family vacation to the West Coast to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. We had a few bucket list places we wanted to go, and so we planned and prepared the trip, which this picture was taken in Yosemite National Park in Northern California or Central California, I don't know, California somewhere, anyhow, it's, it's there. So uh, if you're from California, you probably know, but it's, it's a North Central California. But in, in preparation for it, there were a couple things going on. I was laboring and, and, and intensely involved in ministry, and there was a motivation I wanted to escape the painful labors of, of work and ministry to go on this vacation. But I also wanted to enjoy the pleasures of God's creation and spending time with my family. Both equally valid motivations for going there and being involved in it. As we are working our way through the book of Hebrews and now in chapter 4, we, we see that 
the writer of Hebrews lays out for us these equally valid motivations for embracing genuine faith. He's been calling us to the necessity of genuine faith. And we saw last week, if, we, if you remember, we were in Hebrews chapter 4, the beginning, or the beginning of chapter 4, and we're told that we are to fear and that we are also to be diligent and the awareness of laboring, uh, fearing, and diligence because of the inescapable, <laughs> if you looked at Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and, and 12 and 13, the inescapable discernment of God's word. It's able to pierce and divide between the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then we talked in, in the next verse about there's no creature that's hidden from his eyes and all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Wow. We're made aware. Fully aware, acutely aware of the dire consequences of unbelief. And now, the author of Hebrews turns the tables and begins to focus not on the avoidance of the pain, but the pleasure to be enjoyed as the incentive, as the motivation for genuine faith, for a full-orbed commitment to following Jesus Christ, to not only expressing saving faith, but also to exercising saving faith, to hold fast our confession, so that those who profess faith in Christ are truly found to be those who possess faith in Christ. He comes to us and lays out this. It's not just that our incentive would be to escape the fiery fury of hell, but that it would be to enjoy the pleasures of what it means to be in the presence of God. I like the way John MacArthur lays it out. He says, To walk in the fellowship of the living Christ would be a glorious thing, even if there were no hell to escape. So we have reason to receive Jesus Christ and enter into God's rest, not only because of fear of His judgment, but because of His beauty. Not only because of His wrath, but also because of His grace. In chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, our motivation for faith moves away from the peril of unbelief to the pleasure of believing. The pleasures those who truly believe are destined to enjoy. Becoming a Christian is not just, in essence, to escape the punishment of hell, but it's to enjoy the pleasures of being in a relationship with God from now throughout eternity. And the writer gives us that, genuine faith, entering into rest, real rest. That's the rest that he's talked about in the previous chapters. Entering into real rest is about expressing saving faith. It's about exercising faith. Life is not a whole lot different now than it was then. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ are held up in the world, in our communities, and in our country, as kind of wackos, you know, people who really are a little bit off. They really don't really know what they're about. If we're really serious about our faith, and in our families, we're marginalized and we're trivialized and we're sometimes criticized because we've followed this Jesus, and that's a little bit too much for them. And so you're just a fanatic. You need to tone it down a little bit. 
And the pressures of the world and the pressures of our family and the pressures of our communities lead, tends to, to weed out those who are faint-hearted. And it tends to wear down those of us who are faithful. And so today, the call is no less powerful than it was when the writer wrote to the Jewish professing believers that this letter was written to, to hold fast our confession, to make sure, to secure that we really are children of God, and then to stay faithful in that. For the believers, it's to, hey, let's make sure. And to unbelievers, it's like, let's get this deal done and and enter into that rest that God has called us to. It's not just about escaping pain of judgment. It's about entering the pleasures of a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ from the moment we trust Christ through all eternity. And the writer of Hebrews lays it out for us in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Two facts about the supremacy of Jesus as our high priest that encourage me, I hope they'll encourage you, they should encourage all of us to express genuine faith in Him as as our Savior. And then they provide us with the energy, the power, the strength to exercise this saving faith so that we prove and demonstrate that we are truly holding fast our confession, that we might enjoy His pleasures forevermore. I'm in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read through the text and then we'll begin to unpack these two facts about Jesus' supremacy as a high priest. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be sympathized with our weakness, but one who has has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the perfect high priest. We learn, first of all, that he's a sympathetic high priest. In verses 14 through 16, there are three ways Jesus reveals himself as sympathetic. Three ways that the author reveals that he has sympathy as a high priest. First, we see in verse 14, and 
I, it doesn't exactly say this, but I'm going to try to get you there. I think it's valid. He is seated as our high priest. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest passed through the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies only after he had made sacrifice for his own sins and then sacrifice for the sins of the people he entered with the blood of that sacrifice to sprinkle it on the altar he passed through into the most holy place Christ's priestly office is held up here as an incentive for us to hold fast. The great high priest reveals that term there, reveals Christ's supremacy. As Luther put it, the greatest of all priests. He had passed through, passed through. This priest that's mentioned Jesus, he had passed through the heavens. (laughs) So here's the deal. The high priest passed through the Holy of Holies. Jesus, the true high priest, once he had made sacrifice for all sins for all time, passed into the presence of the living God, into the true Holy of Holies. We find in him being the actual fulfillment of what the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow. He was the substance of it. If you look to chapter 8, verse 1, Uh, Skipping ahead a little bit, it says, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the seated high priest. Because as we looked at in chapter 1, if you went back to chapter 1, verse 3, you'd see that, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. In the Old Testament, the priest didn't sit down. Because they were offering sacrifices and offering sacrifices and offering sacrifices. But Jesus, the priest who has passed through the heavens to his heavenly Father, is now seated on the throne. His work is done. He has made purification for sin once for all time. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, says that, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's done. It's done. He is the perfect high priest. Because since, and then he says, Jesus, making specific reference in verse 14 to Jesus, his human identity as Jesus, the son of Mary, And then the Son of God, which designates him by any standard of Hebrew understanding as God himself. Because if you called yourself the Son of God, that makes you equal with God. The very reason Jesus was crucified, you can look it up in John chapter 5, verse 18. That's why he was crucified, because he said that he was God's Son, making himself equal with God, which they considered blasphemy. So the man, Jesus, and God Son of God, the fully human, fully divine Son of God, tasted death 
for everyone and made propitiation, made atoning sacrifice for all sins. That's Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 2.17. He did it all. So that those of us who would profess faith in Christ could truly possess faith in Christ if we would believe that he has done it. He, we could prove our profession. And he calls us to express faith in Christ because of what he has done for us. And then if we, if we express faith in Christ and trust him as Savior, then we should exercise this faith in Christ, which proves that we truly did profess faith in Christ. He's a, seated as our high priest. Secondly, Christ is sympathetic to our human frailty. Verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who was in all ways tempted like as we are, yet without sin. See, Christ's heavenly position did not separate him from our human condition. He understands what it's like. It did not diminish his human connection. It's further motivation for me to believe and behave as a child of God. is because I have a high priest who understands what I'm going through. And you do too, if you're trusting in, in Christ as your Savior. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren. Why? So he could identify with us, so he could... Associate because the priest's number one responsibility was to represent the people before God. That's what a priest did. And how can you represent people if you're not a people? So he became like us and represents us. And it says that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He can sympathize with us because he was tempted in all ways like we are. Some people see, you know, the Lord is kind of distant and disinterested in what's happening, you know, kind of like some cosmic uh, killjoy up there waiting for us to mess up so he can stomp us like a bug, you know. But he is interested. He's acutely aware. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. But he's also interested in what happens in our lives, our concerns and the realities. Weakness, it says, he, weakness refers to the full range of human limitations. He understands our weakness, our emotions. In his humanity, Jesus understood our frailty. Did you know that he had to have his diapers changed? Yeah. He had to learn how to walk. The Son of God had to learn how to walk. He understands what, it, what it's like to, to be a human being. Now, no, he wasn't tempted with every temptation you and I have because he doesn't know what it's like to be a mother. Because he wasn't a woman, he never had any children, and he was never married. But he was tempted in all ways like we are. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. If you read down through Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we understand that he was tempted to gratify the flesh. Just like you and I are tempted to gratify our flesh. 
in many different ways, but we're tempted to gratify our flesh. He was hungry, and Satan said, hey, just turn this uh, stones to bread and you can eat. He was tempted to gratify the flesh. He was tempted to exercise power. Yeah, just, just jump off the cliff here, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, and, you know, God will let his angels will take care of you. Jesus could have done that. See everything out there, Jesus? I can just give that to you. You can be in charge of everything. But I want to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ refused to deny his Father. He refused to defect away from from Almighty God, to deviate from God's plan for his life, or to deny and defend himself. No, he wasn't going to deny the Father. He wasn't going to deviate from his plan. He wasn't going to defend himself. He was fully committed to follow the Father's plan that led him to the cross, and Satan wanted to deter him. You don't think Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted? Absolutely he understands what it's like to be tempted. Nobody, and I, I get this, Nobody knows what you're going through more than Jesus does. You say, really? He's never walked in my shoes. Oh, yes, he has. He understands exactly. And you want somebody who understands. I had the unfortunate chance, opportunity, uh, to preach at a funeral of a, a, a gentleman several years ago who was in his 40s. It was a tragic accident, and he had lost his life. You know, and there's just something uh, as a parent, you know, you're, you're just not supposed to bury your kids. You know, that's just, that's just not supposed to happen. And this older couple lost their 40-something-year-old son. But there was another couple in the church, and their son had died at 39 of a massive heart attack. And the couple who'd lost their son at 39 got together with the couple who'd lost their son in his 40s. And because they had walked down the road with Jesus through the pain of that tragic loss, they were able to speak truth into their other other people's lives and to keep them on track for Jesus, to hold fast their confession because they walked through the, the shoes that they had walked. Not every detail the same, but they were able to identify. The Lord Jesus is able to identify with us. Knowing someone understands is an incentive, an encouragement to get to know that person. But you notice the text also says in verse 15, yet without sin. So he was tempted in all points like we are in everything, yet he never sinned. And some would say, okay, there you go. He can't relate to me because, you know, I sin. And you do. And so do I. But here's the deal. Yet without sin actually strengthens rather than diminishes his understanding of our temptation and our weakness. And you say, well, how can that be? I would suggest that the reality of temptation is felt most fully by those who resist it completely. I'll say that again. That the, the, the force of the temptation is felt most fully by those who resist it completely. I'll quote C.S. Lewis. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. 
And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Because Jesus knows fully our frailty, and he also knows our proclivity. Our frailty, we're weak. Our proclivity is we're, we're tempted. He is able, as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 18 says, to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He secured our salvation. Passed through the heavens and seated at the right hand of God. He's sympathetic with our weakness. Compels me, should compel others, to actually put their trust or their faith in this Jesus who paid the price that we deserve to pay and then lives and is able to sympathize and encourage us so that we can not only express our faith, but we can exercise saving faith because he knows what's going on. In light of his activity and as our high priest, we're encouraged not to shrink back. Let us hold fast our confession. Finally, Jesus is the source of our help in our need. Verse 16, let us therefore draw near. Why? Because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and because he's sympathetic to us, let us draw near. With confidence to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We learn a couple of things about Jesus. First of all, he's accessible. Let us draw near. Remember, some of you remember the story in the Old Testament about Esther, and she didn't want to go in to see the king. Why? Because unless the king extended his scepter to you, it's over. So approaching the throne is not something anybody who is, has ever lived under a king takes lightly. But this throne is different. He says, let us come boldly. Let us draw near with confidence to this throne. Until Christ, the priest, entered only once a year. Now, through Christ, every believer has access to the presence of God. And he says, let us draw near. But Christ's final and full atoning sacrifice made it possible so that you and I can come to the king. You know the high priest? They used to, they used to wear a little bell around their ankle when they went into the holy of holies. Because... And then they had a rope tied to one foot. Because if they went in there and they messed up, it was over. And they had to get them out of there, so they'd just drag them out. Not something you take lightly. But you and I, because of what Christ has done and paid the price, we can come draw near with confidence. To the throne of grace. This is it. Confidence is freedom to share what's on our heart. He's accessible. And he's helpful. It's the throne of grace. What is grace? It's getting what I don't deserve. It's the throne of God's favor. You and I, if we're children of God, can come into the presence of the living God to to this throne of grace. 
God's throne where Christ sits having completed his atoning work because he tasted death for everyone. That's chapter 2, verse 10. His finished work makes it the throne of divine favor, not fear. And it's the basis for our confidence in the face of our suffering. I know. Most of the people in this room know what suffering involves. When we're tempted to abandon our faith or compromise our convictions. And in light of our sin. So it's when we're suffering or when we're tempted to sin. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, our Lord, understands exactly what it is to suffer and to be tempted by sin. And so in the light of that, we want to compromise our convictions when we're suffering and we're tempted to sin. And so all that means we need help. I need help. I need help to be forgiven of my sins on an ongoing basis. Once and all, for all, they've been paid for, but I need to keep my accounts right with God. And I need help when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm tempted to walk away, and I need grace to be strong in the middle of every difficult situation I'm in. And I can come and find it at the throne. Grace to live. Grace is God's, there's God's mercy. He says that you might obtain mercy. God would forgive my failures. And there are many. And I guess in yours are too. Yeah, I'm not talking about, I haven't robbed any banks lately, you know, but uh, there's pride and there's jealousy and there's covetousness. And there's laziness and gluttony and greed and, you know, all those little nasty things that we'd like to just kind of pass off as, well, I just had a bad thought. Yeah, and that was sinful. It was wicked. But in the middle of it, when I fail to speak up for Jesus, when I'm not loving towards my spouse or my coworker, I can receive God's mercy. Now, what's mercy? It's the flip side of grace. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. I come to the throne because Jesus took it for me. And I don't receive what I deserve, but I get his mercy. And then you might find grace to help in the time of need because I'm tempted to give up. I'm tempted to sin, and I need God's grace to keep going. When I am tired, when my classmates and my coworkers and sometimes my family are making fun of me and putting me down and criticizing and trivializing me and my faith. I need God's grace. I need, my God, I need God's grace to preach His Word. I need God's grace to study His Word. We need God's grace to live this life as a shining light for Jesus. We need God's grace to carry on in parenting, in every aspect of our life, we need His grace. And it says in the text that let us therefore draw near. In Christ, the full measure of God's kindness grips the heart of those who know Him. And His mercy, we can enter with boldness into His presence and receive mercy, that is forgiveness, and know His grace, which is courage to press on in all that we do and say. And He giveth and giveth and giveth again, as the song says. We have a sympathetic high priest. We also have a superior high priest 
in Christ, we have a superior high priest. There were many who held that only the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies, and that was the traditional teaching. But then Jesus came along, and he kind of shattered it. And so this revolutionary idea that somehow every person who has trusted Jesus Christ and his death as a payment for their sin can enter into the presence of God needed some proof for the skeptics. They needed to be convinced that access into God's presence is a reality for all who believe. And so the author, in the next section of this text, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, he proves that Jesus is not just one who meets, but who exceeds all of the requirements for a high priest. Therefore, through him, everyone can have access into the presence of God. So there are qualifications, three of them that are listed in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 10, he he shows how Jesus meets those qualifications. I've distilled it down, and so we're going to cross-pollinate some of those verses into three particular ways Jesus is a superior high priest. First, Christ obtained a superior appointment. Look at chapter 5, verse verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, if you look down at verse 10, he says, being designated by God as a high priest. Here's the point. What's the first requirement of a priest? Taken from men. A priest is a man who is appointed by God. You see it in verse 1. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. Then you see it in verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. This is it's because the priest represents the people. Some of you may or may not know that there's an election that's coming up in early November. We are given the opportunity to vote for people who will represent us. Now, I know there's a lot of cynicism because oftentimes the people that we vote to represent us don't represent us, or they don't do so very well. But here, a priest is one who represents the people as a person represents others who elect them, but he is representing the people. Verses 5 through 7, which begins, so also Christ, then links the requirement of the earthly priest and shows how Jesus fulfills it. So in verse 5, it says, so also Christ did not glorify himself. Right? The psalmist is quoted twice to prove that Jesus fulfills this requirement, a man who is appointed by God. And also how Jesus is superior. So, verse 2, Psalm 2, verse 7, shows that Jesus didn't appoint himself. He didn't take the honor to himself. It says this. You are my son. And he says, a begotten son. It's a proof of Jesus' humanity. Jesus, you are my son. 
Jesus, the Son of God, you are my son, the messianic designation for the heir of David, David's son. So he has the genealogy of David. He is a man, his humanity. And then if you looked at verse 7, it says, in the days of his flesh, speaking of this Jesus, he was a human being. But the text also proves not only was he human, but he was divine. Again, therefore superior. In quoting Psalm 110 in verse 6, he says, just as he says also in another passage, you are a, a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so he's divinely called priest. That's the requirement of a priest. A man called by God. But it says that he was in the order of Melchizedek, which amps up his qualifications, okay? So he just took his resume up to the next level because Melchizedek was a king. So Jesus, who was appointed by God as a human being, as a priest, was also a king. And therefore, he was a superior priest, superior to Aaron because of that. And then you notice it says, a priest forever. There's no human priest who ever lived forever, but Jesus is a priest forever. So he is superior to Aaron in that he is the king and that he is a forever priest. Aaron was a good guy and he was a nice priest, but he was a human thing, simply, not divine. And Jesus is a superior appointed priest. Secondly, Christ offers, a superior, offers us superior empathy. Verse 2, the priest had to do what? He had to be a human being so he could empathize with ignorant and misguided people because he was ignorant and misguided in some things. Now, he was a little bit advanced spiritually and he wasn't stupid, but he was a human being nonetheless. Then you see verses 7 and 8. After verse 5, it says, in, in, in the days of his flesh, Jesus. So you, you have this interplay. In his humanity, the priest can identify with the struggles of people, right? And the problem that they are without losing perspective. That's why he was a priest. The sympathetic person doesn't condone the other person's sin, but neither do they crush him with it. There was a church where uh, a young man had uh, served some time in prison. And I know uh, of the situation. And he had come to the pastor and he wanted to serve in one of the ministries in the church. So what are you going to do? Well, you're serving as the judge right there. So is there going to be mercy? Is there going to be grace? Or is there only going to be law? You don't condone what the person did, but then are you going to crush the person because they did it? That's the issue. And the high priest was sympathetic, so he was able not to condone the sin, but he didn't, didn't, didn't crush the person who, who sinned either. I know of a believer guy who was struggling. He was, had, had some illness and he had some financial problems and he had gone uh, to another brother in Christ and he was sharing some of this stuff. But the guy was irresponsible with his money. And so the brother didn't condemn uh, or condone what he had done you know, because he was not paying his bills and he was delinquent on some stuff. But he didn't uh, crush him either. All he did was say, hey, look, buddy, you know, this is kind of the deal. I mean, I think you need to, you've got some assets over here. Maybe you need to liquidate some of your assets and pay some of your bills and have your name representing Christ honored. He didn't condone the, the activity that was wrong, but he didn't crush him either. He gave him, why, this is the priest. He offers superior empathy. 
The reality of, of Christ's sympathy is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 15, but it's reinforced here in chapter 7, verses 5, verses 7 and 8, but it was also mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17. So it's not a new concept. He's sympathetic. He can identify with our, with our struggles. He understands what's going on in our lives. In the days of his flesh, what is he talking about there in verse 7? Christ's agony at Calvary, before Calvary, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in the days of his flesh, he was praying to the one who was able to save him, save him with loud cries and tears. I think Jesus, in the Garden, was pleading with the Father because of the full understanding of the physical pain that awaited him, as well as the, phys as the spiritual and emotional separation that was awaiting him when he would be separated, when he would take upon himself the sins of all mankind, when he who knew no sin would become sin for us, and he was agonizing before the Father over that. And the text says he was heard, which is an interesting concept uh, when you tease it out. He was heard for his piety. What do you mean he was heard? He was pleading to the one who would save him from death, but the one who could save him from death did not save him from death. But he saved him through death. He saved him through death. Because in verse 8, it says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned what it was to obey God. He learned obedience. He triumphed gloriously through his learned obedience. Folks, isn't that what God asks of us? Is to triumph through the temptation to bail, the temptation to compromise, the temptation to run from our faith. And he teaches us what it is to suffer through it when we learn obedience through the things which we suffer. And Jesus knows just exactly what that is. Everything in his body, human body, was screaming, compromise, bail, get out of here, ditch this whole Jesus thing, this God thing, forget it. He learned obedience to the things that he suffered and he triumphed gloriously. He can sympathize and understands the agony of choosing to obey God when everything in us says, forget that. Some of you maybe have never been there. You probably will be someday. Some of you have been there and you're on the other side of it. Some of us will be there and have been there and will be there again. But Jesus knows. He understands. He agonized in the garden. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Obedience in the midst of his suffering. It says in chapter 2, verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In my suffering, when I am tempted to forsake my faith, in my suffering, when I'm tempted to sin, I have a Savior who knows exactly what I'm going through. And he learned obedience through the things that he suffered so that now I can be steeled and strengthened in my profession of faith so that my profession will truly be my possession because I remain faithful to the God who saved me 
and the God who secured me and now the God who strengthens me in the middle of whatever it is I'm going through. And that's the superior high priest that I serve. That's the superior high priest who has offered up a superior uh, sympathy and now he offers, and it's possible because he offered a superior sacrifice. In verses 1 through 3, the the earthly high priest had to offer sacrifices. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Then he had to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Jesus was made perfect. Notice it says in verse 9, interesting take. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was made perfect by offering the final sacrifice for sin. So he became became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What does all that mean? Well, Jesus was and remains morally perfect. In his character and his nature. But he was made perfect because the Hebrew or the Greek word for made perfect there means completed. He was made to be the complete, or he finished the course that completed him as the perfect high priest when he offered himself up on the cross of Calvary. So that in verse 10 of chapter 2 it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of salvation through suffering. When he went through the suffering... And came out and died on the cross and rose again. He finished the course. Okay, that was the final exam. For becoming the perfect high priest. It didn't make him more spiritually perfect. It didn't make him morally more perfect. It didn't change his character. It made him a perfect priest. Sacrificing once for all. And so his sacrifice is perfect. It was the atonement of sins for all sins. For all man. For all time. I'm not blowing smoke. You can turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. We'll get there someday, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And it is a perfect sacrifice. It is a permanent sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. But this by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12 of chapter 10. But having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, get this, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because my high priest is not actively sacrificing anymore. He did it once for all time. And he is a made a permanent sacrifice, and his perfect and permanent sacrifice makes him the source of eternal salvation. He can only give that which he has accomplished. And he's accomplished an eternal salvation because he paid the debt, the price that each of us owes for our sins once for all on the cross, making it possible for us, if we would by faith accept this gift, his children. And that's why he appeals to a a, a genuine faith. He keeps saying a a genuine faith and makes it possible for us to be in the presence of him for those who, who demonstrate that they're his children by active obedience. That's the end of that verse. It says the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To all who obey him. Well, what does that mean? 
It means you obey because of your faith. It's faithful obedience. It's obedience that's produced by faith that gives a demonstration that we truly believe. It's not obedience that results in our salvation. It's obedience as a result of our salvation. That's the Jesus that we serve. Relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, genuine faith, is motivated by escaping pain. <laughs> you know, that's the fire, hellfire, and brimstone. People, yeah, hey, you're going to go to hell, and, and da, 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 da. And that's true. Beware of those who seem to enjoy preaching that. Okay? I don't want people to go to hell. And yet I have to say that if we don't tell people that that's a consequence of their rebellion, then we're not giving them the whole gospel. God is a righteous and holy God, and he, he deserves our allegiance. And when we rebel against him, we violate the justice and holiness of a God who will punish us. But equally as important is the motivation that we will enjoy pleasure. Joe Fox, professor of humanities at the University of Northern Iowa, when I was an undergraduate student there in a class of about 400 students, I remember him talking to a student after class one time, and he says, they get tired of telling you Christians what you believe. And I, he had my attention then. He says, you believe that you have eternal life from the moment you put your faith in Christ. And I was a Christian. And that was the first time I'd ever heard it, and I heard it from an atheist. But it's true. It is life that begins the moment we trust Christ. It's not something that's tacked on to the end of this earthly existence. It's in His presence there are joys forevermore. Read Psalm 16 at the end of it. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I have a high priest who has made it possible for me to come boldly to the throne of grace, to enter into the presence of God. Now I enjoy those pleasures. And so if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in this Jesus, I implore you on the basis of the pain that you will escape and the pleasure that you will enjoy to turn from your sin and trust Christ today. There's a Savior who sits at the right hand of God who shed his blood so that you and I could live and we could have that life beginning the moment we trust Christ. That's the pleasure that we can enjoy. He permanently pardons. Not like the priest once a year having to sacrifice every... And you know, they gave sacrifices every day for the sins that they knew. The Day of Atonement was for the oops, the ones that they didn't know about, you know, so God would cover everything. And Christ is one who powerfully provides. So if you don't know Christ, my challenge is to trust Christ. If you do know Christ, my challenge is to trust Christ. I want us to express faith in Christ, saving faith. I want us to, ex uh, to exercise saving faith. We have a, a Savior who 
provides for us. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. He knows the temptations. He knows the sorrow. He knows the loneliness. He knows the emptiness. He knows rejection. He knows injustice. He knows everything you and I would experience in this human body, and yet he has paid a debt that will enable us to not escape at all, but to go through it. Remember, he didn't even save his own son from death. He saved his son through death so that he might be a perfect high priest able to identify with you and me in what we experience and have proven he's victorious over it. And so when we take this bread and drink this cup, we're just remembering all of what Jesus has done that I have just been articulating to you this morning as our, as our high priest. His body was broken. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's a superior high priest. His blood was shed to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay because of our sin. Because we are alien from God. He's the perfect high priest offered once for all the sacrifice for our sins. So I invite you this morning, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the Spirit of God moves you, you come up and you take the bread and the cup and our practices. There's a table at the back and two at the front. You just break off a piece of the bread and you take it and you drink the cup. But don't do so in a willy-nilly way. Take some time to reflect. Am I really... I've expressed faith in Christ, but am I exercising that faith? Am I holding fast my confession? Am I truly a child of God? And then come... Rejoice in what God has done. And if you're here this morning and you're not right with God or you just feel like I'm a little bit off and maybe I shouldn't do this, there's no pressure. Nobody should have to take it. But if you're here and you know Jesus, you don't have to be a member of this church or any certain denomination. You're just free to take it. And if you'd rather just sit there and silently just do business with God, that's great too. Nobody's here to judge you. I invite you to pray with me. Father, I pray that those of us who profess faith in Christ, would be encouraged to hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of God, and that we would not only ex have expressed our faith, but we would exercise that saving faith. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus or is really not sure, that they would just cry out in their rebellion and say, yeah, I, I surrender, Lord. I've been trying to live my life on my own. I, I accept that I am deserving of the judgment of God's wrath, but I rejoice that Jesus paid the debt that I deserve to pay, and I trust in what he did as a payment for me. And I invite you now, Lord, to be my master, to rule me, to guide me, direct me in all that I do and say. Father, as we take this bread and drink this cup, or we don't, may your spirit do the work he needs to do in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In order for us to come into the throne room of God, Jesus had to leave it. You know, that's the message from Philippians chapter 2, that he left that glory and that privilege of being at God's right hand. He left that behind so that we can come boldly into his presence. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, oh sinner, come kneel. 
Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your You're not.